I've learned an awful lot from Jung. Um, I feel I have an immense debt of gratitude to him in that in that way. Is that if you read Jung, you're really getting a little education in its uh, in itself. What Jung is trying to do is to is to reinvest that notion of redemption with uh, with meaning, not in a way that abandons its theological term, but but to make that meaningful and existential redemption in a world where God is dead. Welcome to Psychology on the Cross. In this episode, I talk to the British scholar Paul Bishop. Paul holds the William Jacks Chair of Modern Languages at the University of Glasgow. He has spent the last 25 years researching and writing on the foundational relationship between C.K. Jung and Friedrich Nietzsche, Johann Wolfgang Goethe, Hans Trüb and much more. His scholarly work helps us understand how Jung's legacy is not to be understood only as the psychological theory and therapeutic method that he left behind, but to see analytical psychology also as a cultural product in itself. Paul's scholarly work reaches such a width and depth that it really deserves its own separate podcast. At least we would need many more episodes just to scratch the surface of his massive contribution. For this, our first conversation, we decided to stay focused on Goethe and the Faust legend, a text that struck a chord in Jung and a foundational story when trying to understand Jung's own inner motivations, struggles, creative contributions and wrestling with the religious question. In this episode, we discuss Jung's absence in academia, an imitatio Faust in contrast to an imitatio Christi, the question of psychological transformation and how to seek redemption in a secularized world is portrayed in the story of Faust and transmitted through Jung's psychology. But let's start from the beginning. How did he first of all get in contact with Carl Gustav Jung? How did it all begin? I suppose I first came across him in the context of uh, thinking about thinking about German culture. Um, uh, thinking about him too as someone who was a, a post-Nietzschean thinker, and in many respects, this whole question of how one can see Jung in relation to Nietzsche has been one of the one of the questions that that fascinated me and still and still fascinates me. So I guess it comes um, it, it comes back to looking at Jung in relation to Nietzsche, whom I first uh, read in a, a, a little Penguin translation called the Nietzsche Reader. Uh, edited by R.J. Honningdale, which I picked up in the Waterstones branch of Southend-on-Sea. Um, then I went um, and, and studied French and German. I wanted to keep going with Jung and, and um, uh, learned a lot about him, I think, through um, a, a couple of lecturers. But it was very much clear to me that Jung was someone who was seen as, as fringe uh, to Germanistic, um, and unfortunately, I think he still is. I've, I've, I've tried to kind of push him back into the centre, but maybe the centre itself has become the fringe now. Um, and, and I think it was um, because Jung was a slightly kind of odd, um, not always accepted kind of thinker, the more I've become fascinated by him. If I understand your biography right, back in, in 1995, you wrote your doctoral dissertation on uh, Jung and Nietzsche, and it was later published as the Dionysian self, C.G. Jung's reception of Friedrich Nietzsche. Could, could you tell us something about that work and, you know, what led yeah. you to writing that dissertation? 
Yeah, that's right. Well, um, one of the few people who, who did lectures on, on Jung at, uh, at Oxford was, in fact, someone who wasn't in the German department at all, was a, um, a fellow in politics at Wadham College, uh, Robert Curry, who, who did some, some lectures on, on Jung. Um, and, and when I thought about doing um, a, a PhD, um, uh, and in those days you got grants and you got financial support to do it, so it was very different from the kind of climate that we operate in today, um, uh, I went and saw him and, and he said to me, what are you interested in? And I said, well, the question of Jung and Nietzsche. And he said, well, um, you've got the complete works of Jung in 20 volumes, go and read them. Um, and I think probably, probably the best piece of advice um, that, I, that I've ever had. Um, and then I discovered something very interesting about the way that Jung is presented in the libraries in Oxford. Because if you wanted the collective works in English, then you had to go to the Radcliffe Science Library. Uh, you had to cycle all the way out and, um, well, not that far out, but you had to get on your bike and, um, uh, and, and, and go and find them in the Radcliffe Science Library. If, if you wanted Jung in German, then you'd have to go um, not to the Tayloran Institution, which was where uh, most of the modern language books uh, are kept, but you'd have to go to the Bodleian and you'd have to order them up volume by volume. Um, and, and, and there was something which it seemed to me to, to exemplify the way that, that Jung was, was repeatedly pushed to the side and, and kept out of the way. Um, but I was very encouraged through my um, uh, doctoral process by, by having a, a great doctor father, as, as, the Germans, uh, as the Germans say, uh, Richard Shepard, who was, who was very encouraging and, um, and, and supported uh, work on an area which, as I say, even then wasn't, wasn't, wasn't the mainstream, let alone of his interest. Um, he was he was an, an expert in expressionism, but he was he was able to help me uh, formulate an approach to Jung, which came out in the form of a thesis, and then um, I'm, I'm pleased to say, in the form of a, a Vatertuitwiter book. Um, even though it's unfortunately very expensive, and it does tend to put people off, so I'm very sorry about that. But I've never made a penny out of it. But how was it around that time then to to write about Jung and Nietzsche and, and were there also comments or feedback from colleagues or was that a to choose that as a theme? Well, I I, I think it was probably seen as um, uh, a, a rather strange topic to topic to choose. I, I think a lot of that has to do with the way that psychoanalysis uh, was seen and and, and is seen in uh, in Britain. Um, and one notices when you, when you go to Germany or, or, or Switzerland um, uh, that psychoanalysis is much more a part of the culture. There are many more books on psychoanalysis in the bookshops, um, and, and there are many more analysts themselves, as you can tell by the little gold plates saying they've got the name and, um, and, and you can go for therapy there. And, and that's not the place that psychoanalysis has in general, I think, uh, in, the, in, in the UK. Um, and, and, certain, and certainly not with Jung as far as the as far as the academic field is concerned. And it's it's always puzzled me, although I think I'm becoming a little bit clearer as to why it is the case um, that in the arts and humanities, uh, Freud is fine, um, less so now, but uh, but he basically was and is still in there. Um, Lacan is very very fine indeed, um, and he's absolutely okay, uh, but not Jung. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things that um, I, I, I keep on running up against in, in colleagues in German is, is that Jung is somehow seen as a, as, as a thinker who's, who's not important. By contrast, I would say that he's very much a thinker for our times. Um, you don't have to be a card-carrying Jungian in order to see that the guy's got something really important uh, uh, to say to us. Um, and as I say, my own experience is that I've learned an awful lot from Jung. 
um, I feel I have an immense debt of gratitude to him in that in that way. Is that if you read Jung, you're really getting a little education in its uh, in itself. Um, he's a fascinating figure for taking you to all kinds of areas in European thought, world thought. He really is a global thinker in that in that way. And, and without going maybe today in depth into Nietzsche and you, it's such an interesting link. And I've, of course, spent a little bit of time on reading the, the seminars and such. But is there something you can share about what, what you find fascinating in, in what you have found when, when you research the two and maybe parallels and, and, and links and, and relatedness? Yeah, sure. Um, well, of course, Jung himself, uh, draws attention to the the importance for uh, uh, Nietzsche for him. It's um, it, it's an important topic in in memories, dreams, uh, dreams, reflections, uh, and of course Jung gives this uh, huge great seminar nineteen thirty four to thirty nine on on Nietzsche's Zarathustra. So it, it, it's pretty clear to me that. Um, uh, that, that Nietzsche was a central figure for him. And I was very lucky when doing the thesis that it was just about the time that I was working on it that those those uh, seminars on on Zarathustra got got published. So that was that was a nice little bit of synchronicity for which mm. um, uh, I, I, again I've been been very grateful. Um, so, so Jung himself draws attention <coughs> to, to to Nietzsche. Um, that there is this strange remark that's made in Memories, Dream, Reflections about he felt that he might have been too much like Nietzsche. And I think that brings us into a theme which is, you know, dear to your heart and dear, dear to the heart of this, this podcast, uh, which is to do with the religious question. Um, and I suppose I'd see in headline terms the importance of the relationship between Nietzsche and Jung lying in this idea of um, what do we do um, if God is dead? Uh, that's clearly such an important theme for, for Nietzsche um, and, and, and expressed in the form not of a simple atheistic declaration there is no god but rather god is dead um and it seems to me that jung has been trying to respond to that think through the consequences of that um one of the ways in which that was done was through the uh, little text septim sermones um ad mortuos and now we can see with the publication of the red book what a big topic this is for this is for jung and one of the lines that one finds in the in the sermons and in the red book is that um, a, a god is not dead is lebendiger than ye he is more alive than, than than ever and that's clearly a repost um, to nietzsche The biography of uh, Carl Jung that you wrote in the Critical Life series, the first chapter is called uh, A Child, is named The Child of Goethe. Uh, yeah. Could you speak, uh, maybe start just with that sort of legend around uh, Jung and Goethe's uh, biological relationship, and maybe from there we can move into the, to this, uh, this part of the theme? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, the fact that I wrote the, the critical guide is another good example of how these things, you know, come about not through your own doing, but through the the, the invitation of, uh, of of others. And and Reaction um, uh, very kindly invited me to uh, uh, to, to to do an, an introductory introductory biography on on, on Jung. Um, I was hoping that I could, if I did that, also persuade them to, to allow me to do an introductory biography on Ludwig Klagens, who's another thinker very close to my heart, but wasn't able to uh, persuade them of the market value of that, unfortunately, and maybe they were right. Um, but this whole question of, of, of Jung and his relation to Goethe, 
I think is um, it is wonderfully symbolized by this this story that Jung um, keeps talking about and saying that he doesn't want to talk about, but he does keep on talking about it, which is this legend of being um, in, uh, uh, as it were, a, a, or literally a bastard child of Goethe, that he is an illegitimate son of, of Goethe, who is the, the great-great-grandfather in, in, in some way. Um, and it's clear that there is something of symbolic importance to it. And, and, and for me, it's a way of, of Jung acknowledging his indebtedness to, uh, to Goethe, that he takes an awful lot from, from Goethe, as it were, his intellectual framework, um, is provided by is, is provided by by Goethe, uh, but he's also not simply reproducing it, um, but he's wanting to use it um, for his own purposes, and that's why he is this kind of illegitimate great god figure, who is a great grandfather figure, uh, godfather figure, um, who is uh, who is there in, in, in the past for him. So I think it's 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 a very nice way to express this this relationship on the one hand, which is very very close. But on the other hand, not one of simple identity as, as, as well. And I think it goes back to this question that we find in Remember's Dreams Reflections of this first reading that he has of, of Faust when he is a, when he is a child. Um, uh, we're told that it's um, Jung's mother um, who uh, recommends that, that he read him. Why didn't you go read Faust one of these days? Uh, she, has, she says to him, um, and Jung does. And he's struck by it. And I think in many respects, throughout the rest of his life, he is trying to understand what on earth it is that Goethe is doing in this um, remark remarkable work. Um, a very strange work. Um, and I think it's one of the things that's often missed when, when people present Faust as kind of, you know, the iconic work of, of German literature. Well, well, what an icon to have. I think one of the few critics who's really put their finger on this is, is Harold Bloom and his book on the, on the Western canon. But he starts off by, by saying how strange, how weird uh, uh, Faust is. Um, so it's not, I don't think, a dry, canonical, irrelevant, um, out-of-date uh, text at all. Um, it, it is weird, and it's weird in a way which makes, it, which makes it interesting. And Jung, I think, identifies two things in particular that um, he wonders about when reading Faust. And the first of those is this figure of Mephisto, um, the relation between Faust and Mephisto, and this very difficult question of, well, how are we to interpret the, the end of Faust, Faust II, um, when Mephisto is in effect, um, in effect tricked out of, um, out of having Faust as his prey through, through having, has he or hasn't he won the, won the wager? So there's this whole question of the relation between Faust and Mephisto and what happens at the end when Mephisto is tricked out of getting Faust's soul. And then, as a related point, because after all, it's Mephisto who tells Faust about them, the related point is the figure of, of the mothers. Um, and the question of what does this mother scene represent in Faust II? How are we to, uh, uh, how are we to understand it? Um, and, and I think we can see both of these themes, the question of Faust and the relation to, and the relation to Mephisto, the whole question of the mothers and, and, the, and the mother scenes is running away through uh, all its way through uh, Jung's earliest work, um, Psychology of Unconscious, Transformations and Symbols of Libido, Wandlungens und Bolle de Libido, where you have um, numerous and very substantial references to and quotations from Faust. So I think it's a mega important question for, for Jung and to the extent 
the transformations in symbols sets up the agenda for what Jung wants to do, contra-Freud, contra not just Freud, but also pro what he himself wants to see himself, himself doing, then we can see that Goethe has helped Jung provide that, discover that intellectual framework for him. And how would you describe what, what when you say what he wants to do? I mean, how, how would you, in simple words, try to describe what he wants to do with this uh, project that's starting here? I suppose it comes down to this, to this question of what does one understand by libido? Um, uh, how does one define it? Um, you've got Freud's view of libido as essentially um, sexual. Uh, you've got um, Adler talking about libido. Now, Adler is another figure who I think is is pretty much left out of the figure uh, and out of the picture, unfortunately. But you've got, you've got Adler who... Um, Jung, I think, not entirely incorrectly aligns with, with Nietzsche and the will to power. You've got the idea that libido is essentially um, a, a, drive, a drive to power. And against that, Jung is trying to offer a, a much more intricate and sophisticated idea of libido because it can also turn against itself. Um, because you have this, you enter this whole dynamic of, of growth and death and rebirth. And so you might say you've got an, a definition of the libido which is essentially processual um and, and what have we got in um in, in the form of goethe's faust we've got a wonderful working out of of process across part one and then on an even larger scale in, in part two you have got a whole set of, of of processes and for me it's that dynamic of coming into being and dying away and being and being reborn that dynamic uh that narrative if you like that structural dynamic Which is in which is in Faust. That is the most important thing for Jung. It, it's not it's not so much that we can go searching for alchemical symbols, although they're undoubtedly there. And Jung talks about Faust as being an alchemical text. But I think that's not simply an invitation to to hunt the symbol, but is to look at the deeper underlying structures. And in the case of alchemy, you have the structure of transformation. In the case of Faust, very evidently. You have this structure of transformation, and it's also there. It's at the heart of well, it's in the, it's it's in the very title of the book, the Wandlung, transformations and the symbols of the libido, which is part of Jung's project. But also, you're mentioning the mothers, and you're mentioning Mephistopheles. Yeah, and yeah. Is, is there something to say, Mister Shortly, about those two uh, huge themes? Well, if we if, if we go back and we we, we look at Faust too. Um, uh, the mother scene is not directly represented. It is something um, the descent of the mothers, of course, in a way, can't be represented because they're they're outside space and time, and that that does make it difficult to represent. But Mephisto tells Faust about hanging him to go down to the mothers. Why is he wanting to do that? Because he wants to get um, <clears throat> uh, Helen of Troy and Paris back in order that he can present them to the to the emperor for entertainment. So you, you've got a very complex narrative framework as part of as part of Faust II. Um, but Jung hones in on this, um, as, as, as others have done, Rudolf Steiner, for example, on this particular episode as being one which is of um, symbolic importance. And, and it is of great importance. At the same time, one also would say when reading Faust of Faust II, that as a literary text, it is full of symbolism. I think it's also full of irony and humor as, as, as well. 
Um, and that, that's an aspect of Goethe, which it seems one often overlooks. Maybe Jung himself overlooks it um, from, 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 time, from time to time. But Mephisto is telling Faust about how he must descend down into the depths in order to be able to bring up Helen of Troy. That is to say, in order to bring up again the emblem of ancient beauty. So we've got about, we've got behind this story of getting these figures up for the for the entertainment of the emperor in um, Faust Faust two and and one. We've got the idea of how do we recover the past? How do we recover ancient beauty? And 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 how do we how do we bring it to life? It's not simply recovering it as something which is dead and gone, but how do we bring it up and enter into a living relationship with it? And of course, that that resurrection, if you like, that recovery, that revival, that bringing to life of ancient beauty is actually done through the form of of Helena um, uh, in, uh, in in third act of Faust, where Faust two, uh, where Helena actually speaks. Goethe writes these uh, these beautiful Greek meters in order to show how the past can be can be revived, not just as an uh, an experiment in, as it were, antiquarian interest, but in something which is alive and beautiful for us uh, today. And it seems to me that, again, Jung understands that um, uh, in a very intuitive way. He, he, he latches onto this idea of how do we enter into a re- living relationship with the past? Or, as he puts it when he's talking about this in the Red Book, he says, um, how, do we, um, how do we come to terms? How do we pay our respects to the dead? Um, and so it's the dead, not just as the dead and gone, but the dead who have an influence on us now, who are, in a way, more alive than, than we can be in our modern or, or postmodern way. Um, and so um, Mephisto telling Faust how to get to mothers and how to go to the mothers and bring up this figure of Helena is about how do we dig down into that part of ourselves which he calls the collective unconscious? How do we recover part of what is our own inheritance, which is something psychological, but I think also cultural as, as well? That's why, for me, analytical psychology is, sure, it's a therapeutic method, but it's a great cultural project as well. And how do we make it alive and beautiful for us as well? Well, you, you do write somewhere, and I think it's actually related to, to symbols of transformation. You, you say that uh, marked by a clearly Faustian motive as cost, casting aside the constraints of Christianity. Uh, I'm also just wondering, as you speak now of, of a rebirth and, uh, and, and sort of a transformation and and, 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 and the wandering in the libido and, 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 and what, we, what, we, what we notice in Faust, how, how Mephistopheles, the the devil, if I can simplify, uh, leads to, to this renewal. And at the same time, I, I'm thinking, as we know, then Jung's uh, struggle or like a context, like being in this sort of Christian context and, uh, and yeah, this, this casting aside the constraints of, of Christianity. I'm, I'm not sure if it's too early or if there's something to say about that, it, that struggle also with, 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 with that tradition. Is that a is that sort of left out in, uh, or is that very fully integrated, you feel, in, 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 in the work of uh, Faust or, or also in the work of Symbols of Transformation? Mm. Yeah, no, that's a, that, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. Um, 
I just happen to have at hand the, uh, the, the page on memory change reflections um, uh, where, where, where Jung talks about Faust. And it's, uh, it, it's a great passage, and it's a passage to which um, uh, Peter Kingsley in his book Catafalque also draws our attention as, as well, because I think he recognizes as well the importance of, of Goethe for Jung. And, and, and Faust uh, and, and Jung, or who, whoever wrote Yaffe, whoever wrote a memory change reflection, says, Faust struck a chord in me. And so again, this sense of identification pierced me through in a way I could not but regard as personal. And, and, and I think that's what I like about Jung is that he sees Faust. It's not just a great text, um, but it's a great text for him. So I think he, he, he makes that point that when reading literature, it, at the end of the day, it's not just academic. It's really got to be personal as well. He says, it awakened me the problem of opposites, of good and evil, mind and matter, light and darkness. So big questions, the big ideas, but not as abstract and, and in that sense unimportant, but as matters which are of vital importance to, to being a human being. Faust, the inept Perbrand philosopher, encounters the dark side of his being, the sinister shadow of Mephistopheles, who, in spite of his negating disposition, represents the true spirit of life, as against the arid scholar who hovers on the brink of suicide. Now, of course, anyone who's an academic is getting a little bit of a slap in the face with that, isn't it? Because it's saying, it's saying salvation doesn't come through the academic activity, but it comes through this understanding of what the true spirit of life is. And of course, that is, I think, um, a part of the representation of Mephisto in, in, in Goethe's Faust, when, when Faust is given the line, ich bin der Geist, der stets verneint, und stets das gute Schaft. So, so that denial, very dialectical, this, this saying no actually brings, yes, something important um, into existence. Jung says, my own inner contradictions appeared here in a dramatized form. Jung had written virtually a basic outline and pattern of my own conflicts and solutions. So it, it seems to me that he, he, he sees Goethe's Faust as creating this arena, this space for him to explore himself uh, as, as well. And then he goes on to say, later, I consciously link my work to what Faust had passed over. And for me, these are the three great topics of analytical psychology. Respect for the eternal rights of man, so it's human rights, so there is an ethical dimension to analytical psychology. Second, recognition of the ancient, what I was talking about earlier, how do we deal with the archaic, uh, and the continuity of culture and intellectual history, and that is what I would see as Jung's great contribution to the arts and humanities, even if the arts and humanities doesn't seem able to see it. And how does this all link to this question of religion and God? Well, of course, that is the key part of the, the overarching narrative framework as Faust. The, the story of Faust begins uh, in the prologue in, in heaven by staging a meeting between God and the devil. Um, so we have this theological um, background, which, of course, is taken straight out of the Bible. What we're dealing with here is the story of, of the book of Job. And of course, in 1952, Arthur de Job is coming down the track as well as, as, as part of this great continuity in Jung's, in Jung's works. Um, and as you know, in the, sto the story of Job is this question, is, is um, dealing with this question of, of, of good and evil and, and how we, how we do respond to the fact that there, there is evil, there is sickness, uh, there is death and destruction that's in the, that's in the world. And it's, it seems to be interesting that a, a text which is essentially secular, um, uh, Goethe's Faust, nevertheless importantly recognizes the religious dimension in cultural terms 
um, in various ways, but chiefly these two, through the form of the prologue in heaven, um, uh, where, where God and Mephisto talk, and just as in um, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Job is identified as, as it were, the figure on whom um, uh, the, the Satan is going to be able to um, work his evil magic. So equally, um, the Lord, the Herr, in uh, the prologue in Faust, uh, says says to, to Mephisto, look, here is my knecht, um, here is my servant, you know, he'll find his right way through, um, uh, even if you go and uh, even if you go and tempt him, and this sets up the whole um, dynamic of the story of Job, which is essentially the same as the story of Faust. That's one of the religious dimensions which I think is in there, an important Judeo-Christian framework to the entire story of Faust. Then, if we have ever make it to the end of Faust II itself, uh, uh, we have the great Schluss scene, the final, the final scene, which is um, a, a parody. A pastiche, difficult to find the right kind of word for it, a reworking of um, Dante's Divine Comedy and the climactic scene of, uh, of, of the Paradiso. Um, and you have all these angels and all these doctor figures and you have the entelechy of Faust going up. And of course, at the end of it all, you've got the Magna Mater herself. So as a text which is um, essentially a, a, a part of the, the secular canon, it's suffused, it's absolutely saturated with these religious ideas and, and images, uh, which are not really incidental, but are absolutely integral to the, to the story. They're there right at the beginning of the prologue um, in the Judeo-Christian background of um, the story of Job. And they're there right at the conclusion with this Dantesque um, apotheosis with which the entire work ends. It's what, what we're seeing here with, with Jung's fascination and this chord that's been struck in him uh, reading Faust. Uh, is it, uh, we've been talking about an imitatio Christi before and, and Jung's sort of rendering of that, but it sounds like an imitatio Faust here. Or, uh, or I'm wondering, is Faust the figure of, 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 that, that shows the pattern for, for Jung for how, how to redeem? Well, I, 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 think, I think that's a very good way of, of putting it. Except, of course, that, that interestingly, and that seems to be something that Jung draws attention to when he's talking about, about Faust, is, is that in many ways Faust is, is, is a failure to integrate the shadow, um, is, a, is a failure to successfully resolve these, uh, these problems. And that's why Faust is such a, a morally compromised figure. Um, uh, he talks, uh, Jung talks about Faust as being this, this arid scholar. Um, and of course, there is then the whole question of the involvement of Faust, his responsibility for, for what happens to uh, uh, Philemon and Baltzis, um, uh, uh, towards the end of, towards the end of Act Two. Um, and, and of course, that's slightly problematic because I can see that Jung is absolutely right to insist on the ethical, the, the moral dimension to this question of, of, of transformation. But at the same time, at the end of the day, Faust, Faust is you know, a, a literary text. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult. I think there is a, a kind of category problem here with trying to read Faust in moral, moral terms. Mm. But looking, looking at the question of, imitat, of, of an imitatio Fausti, anyway, that that's not what you want to do because you end up being an arid scholar, uh, and you end up having uh, blood on your hands um, as far as as, as far as uh, uh, Philemon and, and, and Balthus are con 
are concerned. Um, so it's having Faust as a kind of as, as, as a kind of Faust the, the figure, um, this this um, literary character, is not the example, but imitatio Faust in the sense of imitating the work of Faust, Faust as um, as a text, Faust as a cultural artifact. Yes, I'd say you're absolutely right because that text embodies this transformational dynamic in which Jung is so interested. Mm. Yeah. When, 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 when I read Memory Streams Reflection, you know, there is this uh, quote that you've probably often heard, but, but I will share it for, for those who have not heard it, where Jung uh, sort of confesses, saying that the older I have become, the less I have understood or had insights into or known about myself. I mm. am astonished disappointed, pleased with myself. I am distressed, depressed, rapturous. I am capable of all these things at once and mm. cannot add up the sum. I am incapable of determining ultimate worth or worthlessness. I have no judgment about myself and my life. There is nothing I am quite sure about. I have no definite convictions, not about anything really. I know only that I was born and exist, and it seems to me that I have been carried along. I exist on the foundations of something I do not know. When Lao Tzu say, all are clear, I alone am clouded. He is expressing now what I feel in advanced old age. Isn't isn't that a beautiful passage? Um, And it's it's the lucidity of the self-insight that's there. Um, which I think is striking, as well as the fact that it's it's a kind of reworking of the topos, um, that old Socratic topos, topos of I know that I know nothing, mm-hmm. um, and that if you know that you know nothing, um, that's not simply something negative, but in a way that's the great breakthrough. But um, it's also the I beginning that, of past one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I think that, um, and, and, and I think that that is um, uh, obviously, as uh, Roman sees Faust presented as as as, as a kind of uh, scholarly figure, um, one does somewhat sympathise with him. You know, he's learned all these things, and he says well, it hasn't actually got me anywhere. What he wants to know, he says, does ich erkenne was die Welt? in innocent zusammenhang. And I think there you go, you get that sense of, this is not simply bookish understanding. Faust's done that. And the way Jung does it as well, because he sets himself up as um, a lecturer, he sets himself up as as an analyst. Um, But he doesn't just want this book learning, he wants that experiential dimensions, experiential dimension as well. Does he erkenne was die Welt in innocent zusammenhang? So actually understanding how the world functions. Um, and by talking about it as I know Welt, it is it's to see the world as a cosmos rather than simply a happenstance of things. It's to see the world as a place where, um, where one can look for meaning. Um, and I think that's a great Goethean project, is to see life as something which is essentially meaningful. There's a great quote where, uh, where Jung says in one of his letters, he says, he says, the point of life is life. And on the one hand, that's a tautology. On the other hand, it, it isn't. It's, the whole point is to, is to be alive. It's a, a kind of vitalist conception of, uh, of, of, of identity. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's also to see that 
was die Welt zusammenhält, ist to understand the dynamics, is understand the processes, to understand the transformations that go that go on within it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I also, I mean, I did uh, just before we met today. I, I sort of reread the conclusion that you make in in your biography on Codium. And and you 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 in the last paragraph you pointing to that you say that. And this, after all, is precisely the message of Faust, that one replaces the violent striving indexed to the masculine or patriarchal to attain something essentially unknowable, to perceive the inmost force that bonds the very universe by an acceptance of a gentler, almost imperceptible dynamic of being pulled along the eternal feminine draws us on high. In other words, ultimately Jung subscribed to a position one might well call Goethean vitalism. He believed that the point of life is life. Well, that um, I couldn't put it better myself. I mean, no, I mean, you I, put I, it well yourself. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you find that there's some meaning in that because um, uh, it's uh, one. What one does sometimes when, when when dealing with these texts, which are so very difficult, think, you know, have I really got a hang of the whole thing? Uh, the, the whole thing at all? Um, but but the more I look at it and um, Uh, the more that I have conversation with people like myself and, and 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 others, the more it seems to me that you know this is this is a helpful and a fruitful approach towards these texts and to um and to and and to Jung. It's it, it's not about forcing them into some sort of preconceived predetermined pattern. It's it, it's not about you know getting them to align with each other in um uh, in in a way which is not which is not true to them um but it, it is in a way to take seriously Jung's sense that um culture is essentially a question of of of, con of continuity um and i think that's maybe something that we've lost in the in in, in the arts and humanities where we very much like deconstructing we like um, disrupting uh, and we like problematizing and and And, that, and that's all fine. But if you only leave, leave people with that, and of course, there is this crisis in the arts and humanities at the moment, at least in, in, in the universities, that we're getting fewer and fewer students. Um, and it is maybe one of the problems that if you offer something which is um, essentially negative and, and disruptive, that, that doesn't answer the need that people have, which is to say, well, I want to understand how these texts interrelate i want to understand what is what what are the connections between them i want to understand actually what are the connections between myself and the world and i think you know the big topic that jung addresses which is what is the relation between between the self and the world that is really what a renewed and revived arts and humanities uh, might think about offering to people because if those connections are there they're there whether we recognize them or not And I think that, that Jung is a great thinker for trying to say, well, let's try and make these ideas productive. It doesn't mean we have to be signing up to being card-carrying Jungians or anything, anything like that. But can these ideas be made, be made to work? Do they help enrich our understanding of these texts like Brutus Faust and, and, and Nietzsche's Zarathustra? And if so, then, then that's, that's, sure, that's surely a good thing. And it's not committing oneself a priori to a particular ideological uh, position. It, it's simply to understand what these these thinkers, these writers, the, these artists um, were doing. It's about having an attitude of humility towards them and saying, we've got in Faust an incredibly complex text. How am I, with my limited intellectual capacities, going to be able to enter into this in, in, into this vast world? And similarly with Jung, this immense demonstration of, of, of learning of erudition that we find in that we find in his works, I think ought to encourage us to say, well, 
let's go let's go with this flow and let's and, and let's try and get into um, the continuities which which Jung draws his attentions to. I'm also thinking uh, about Jung's need to sort of uh, bring ideas into life uh, also materially or like yes his writing his thinking but also to actually sculpt things yeah so at mm. all, you know at his uh, tower there volume yeah. he built he carved the famous inscription on the wall Philemonis Sacrum Fausti Poententia the shrine of Philemon the repentance yeah. of Faust he carved in there, yeah, into the yeah. world. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering for you, uh, how do you, how do you understand this? Uh? That, 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 that's a very good question. And um, um, I, I, again, I was interested to see that in the catafalque, uh, Peter Kingsley pays uh, pays a lot of attention to this um, uh, to, 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 to this inscription, um, as, as well as to the significance of um, the tower at uh, at Bollingen as well. Have, have, have you ever visited the Bollingen Tower, by the way? Yes, I've been there once. Yes, been there yeah. once. Yeah. Yes. Um, because it, it is a it, it it is a building which, in many ways, I think should be um, you know it's it's part of. Um, National or international patrimony in some in, in some ways, um, and it, it's a good example of um, how how Jung works with images. He works with with texts, and here he's working with with architecture as uh, as, as well. Um, and this whole question of, of what does that inscription mean? Well, I suppose it comes to this question of which Philemon are we talking about? Um, because we have the Philemon that's there, the Philemon and Bounces in Act Two of Goethe's Faust. That that in turn um, refers back to the, um, the the story of uh, in, in Ovid in the, in the Metamorphoses, um, uh, which Goethe, in a conversation with Eckermann, says is kind of part of the uh, part of part of the background to what he was to what he was doing. With. And then we have Jung's Philemon as well. This this um, this figure with the sort of kingfisher wings, this guru-like figure um, um, uh, who appears. Um, and uh, I wish I could give an entirely coherent explanation of what it means to talk about the shrine of Philemon and 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 the repentance of, of Faust. Um, but to me, it seems it seems uh, Jung's way of, of acknowledging his. Um, his personal debt to this this Goethean dilemma um, of should we say the, necessi- the, the necessity of, of of evil and the um, inevitability of, of, of violence, um, and that's that's something which is too easy to say and um, too easy to too easy to pass over. And Jung, I don't think, means it in a, in, in an easy way, um, and nobody should um, after the twentieth century mean it in a in, in an easy way. It seems to me a way of, of, of linking <clears throat> the kind of ethical and moral and psychological questions that Jung is dealing with, with political issues. And um, in the, the bit of memories, dreams, reflections that I was um, reading from where he talks about Faust, up above, he, he talks about um, how the archetypes were, were knocking on, on, on the door um, in Wagner. He talks about the First World War. There is, of course, the relation he makes uh, between um, <clears throat> what happens to Philemon and Bacchus in the, in the Second World War. So the political dimension of the, of, of the real world um, devastation uh, that, uh, that Jung is, is part of as, a, as well as a, as a historical figure. To me, it's 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 problematic because we have um, real historical moral issues about guilt and responsibility, 
And then on the other hand, we have a literary text. We have a, we have a cultural artifact. And to me, there's 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 a, a difficult relationship between between the two of those things. And I'm not sure that it is always the right thing to talk about historical guilt and responsibility in in literary terms, um, because because they're simply different. They're they're they're, they're two different they're two different categories. But it seems to me my provisional understanding of of, of what is happening in that in in that in, inscription. Um, is to say that Jung is, is is understanding the sources of what goes wrong in the 20th century. And the year, do we know the year that he actually made this inscription? About? Um, uh, that's a, that's a very good question. I think it is there in the in the first iteration of the of the town. Then it moves around. I think. I think he then puts it as, as the town builds. He he shifts it over to to another place. Um, but my question would be, when he talks about it as the, the, the shrine of Philemon, is we, we've got these three Philemon figures, the Jungian, the Ovidian, and the, and, and the Goetheian. Um, so of, of which shrine is it? And if, if it's a shrine to all, to all three of them, then how does that relate to this, this penitential question of, of Faust? Because, of course, Faust is, in Goethe's text, not penitential. That, that's the whole problem. Um, that's the whole problem um, in, in moral terms within this theological framework of understanding what happens at the end of at, at the end of Faust Faust two. With, within the terms of that framework, what happens at the end of Faust two is is a scandal because Faust, after all, the man who's entered on the pact uh, with the devil, um, led Gretchen into a ruin, has got the um, blood of Philemon and Balkis on his hands, ends up being saved, and of course that is what is that that that's the great moral, if you like, theological affront to Judeo-Christianity that's, um, that Grud is making in his text, is that Faust, who in every other Faust story is damned, is in this one precisely because of what he's done is, is, is saved. And, and the one thing we don't see Faust being is, is penitent. There is this moment at the end where he says, well, I recognise that I've spent all my time running through this, this world um, uh, and and he almost repeats, or, or does repeat, depending on the point of view, voice uh, the the terms of the the terms of the wager. Um, but we don't have a fully repentant Faust at the end. In fact, curiously enough, the only figure who's referred to as being penitent in the final scene uh, is is that of Gretchen. Gretchen, who is referred to as as a penitent woman, otherwise known as otherwise known as Gretchen. But if you look at Faust, the last thing that Gretchen should be, bearing in mind what Faust and Mephisto have done to her, is penitent. Yeah, there is this uh, quote now uh, in Act Five: "He who strives on and lives to strive can earn redemption still." Yeah, ex- exactly. Mm-hmm. So, Ed, so we've got this question of what does it mean to be redeemed? What does what does eleuson mean? What does what does redemption mean? Um, it's it's a question which is, I think, feeding into Jung's work on on alchemical texts and, in particular, the works in in, in Volume Twelve, Psychology and, and Alchemy, when he talks about conceptions of redemption in um, in, in, in alchemy. Um, and of course, that that's that's an interesting question. Is can we do we does does Eleuse or does redemption still have any meaning for us for us today? And it seems to me that what Jung is trying to do, his 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 theological contribution, if you like, um, 
is to is to reinvest that notion of redemption with uh, with meaning, not in a way that abandons its theological term, but but to make that meaningful, um, if, as it, if it, if you like, an existential redemption in a world where God is dead. This, this makes me think about the, the, the background to, to these struggles or the theology or the, uh, uh, the Christian heritage that both uh, Goethe and, and Jung uh, yeah, lived, lived within themselves. And I'm also thinking about the, the Erlöser would, 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 in a more traditional way, be Jesus Christ, no? I mean, the Redeemer. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering about that, if you could say something, what you found in your research and how you understand maybe first Goethe's relationship to, to, to Christ and Christianity and, and, and something about you on, on, on that matter. Yeah, sure. Um, well, um, th- th- there is this line which we find in, in, in Dichtung und, und Wahrheit. What a great title, Poetry, Poetry and Truth. So it's not a simple autobiography, just as Memories, Dreams, Reflections, not a simple autobiography. Uh, where, where Goethe talks about wanting to have um, a, a religion for my own private use, and it seems to me that that's, uh, that 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 comes very close to the way that um, that Jung sees things as as, as well. Um, I, I think that there is a sense of disconnect bet- that the Goethe experiences between um, uh, between himself and the church or, or organized organized religion. Um, but this doesn't mean that he, he, he abandons those religious terms, as, as you can see in Faust, um, the theological aspects is, is, is really important. So he doesn't simply turn his back on it, but he, he treats it, he treats it differently. As it were, he treats it, um, artistically in Faust. Um, and similarly with Jung, we have a sense of a great big, a, a great disconnect with organized religion that's there in the accounts that we find in Memory Exchange Reflections of his first communion, this, experience which is built up for him and it, it's it, it's a huge it's a huge disappointment as well as this as well as this sense that uh, the religion hasn't quite got its uh, hasn't got a handle on what god really means this peculiar god that that defecates on basel cathedral this god that is he talks about him being um uh, ecstasy and a bloody struggle as, as as well so um, a, a God that's far more ambivalent and, and, and ambiguous than the very simple one which uh, which John sees being being offered in uh, the, the form of Protestant Christianity that he that he comes across. And of course, then there's the whole question of his father Paul Jung's um, apparent loss of apparent loss of faith. But again, someone for whom God simply becomes dead. It doesn't it doesn't work anymore. But Jung is not unlike Freud, who just sees religion as mere infantile narcissism, doesn't see it as simple as that, but he's trying to work out a response which which recognises the symbolic dimension to, uh, to Christianity. And I think that's why Jung is so important for us, because he sees this symbolic dimension as um, on, its, on, on, its, on its last legs, that the symbol has ceased um, to speak to us um, in the way that it did the way that it did in the past. And so the whole question is, how do we recover the symbol and in transformations and symbol uh, transformations and symbols of the libido? Uh, Jung has this interesting passage where he says, um, what we have to do is to replace belief with understanding. 
I think every time that Jung is dismissed as some great irrationalist, some great um, mystic in the negative sense of the word figure, this, this really doesn't take into account what, uh, what, what the man himself writes. It says, well, belief should be replaced by understanding. That's clearly going to be understanding in the analytical, psychological sense of how it is that symbols have, a, um, um, have an effect. Um, and I think that, again, Goethe's Faust as, as a work, rather than on the, on the narrative level, exemplifies... Uh, what, what Jung wants us to wants us to do, which is to preserve those theological symbols, those those religious uh, symbols, but to understand that that is how they are functioning as symbols. Um, and, and that's not to reduce their their power. Um, it's in fact to kind of open them up and make them available to us in a um, in, in in a new way. And and this is clearly a debate that's going on within the within the church itself. I'm, I'm thinking about the. Um, recent moto proprio that's been issued by the Pope to, to in effect, outlaw um, the Latin Mass or the or, or the Tridentine Mass. Um, now, Jung, when he's writing about it in his transformation symbols in the Mass, there we got that word transformation there, again, is fascinated by this, this, this symbolic di- dimension. And Jung, I think, is someone who, who doesn't want to go to church, but he's interested in what this... this um, religious this cultural construct can can say and so i think it's interesting that one of the one of the most most vigorous responses and defenses of the latin mass the Dudentine mass has has come from an, an atheist thinker in france michel Onfray, uh who wrote a great piece of that i think it was in the figaro where he says look i'm an atheist but even i can see that the Dudentine mass is important because of its cultural its symbolic significance um, and I think that in, in, in many ways, Jung um, might be able to help the church think through some of these the, some of these questions, particularly when one reads more and more about uh, in the Church of England uh, the cultural of managerialism uh, uh, taking over within the, within the church, um, and, and that's to do with this question of what is the purpose of the church? What does it mean to offer to, to offer redemption? And of course, that's that's Jung's question as well: is what does it mean to be redeemed today? I just the other day finished the editing the last conversation I had with uh, Bernard Sartorius, which is a union analyst in Zurich, but he's also a scholar of Islamic studies. Mm. And one of the themes or light motifs that came back to in that conversation was the question of surrendering and, and mm. how, how in various ways having to do with redemption, of course, but mm. in various ways how you struggled up until maybe the end of his life. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, I think I think you're right to, um, uh, to draw attention to the uh, to, to the significance of, of Islamic culture as well. Um, you've got the figure of Kidir, the green one, haven't you? As um, as, as, as very very important for in, in the Black Books as well as in other parts of Jung's writing as uh, writing as well. Um, and and I think that that that, that Jung is Jung as a thinker is. Um, how, how, how should one say um, uh, he can help us understand the problems that we might have with um, have with particular spiritual or religious or, or religious traditions, and, and that's what makes him so useful. Is that he is um, he, he's sympathetic to what religion wants to wants to do, but but actually thinks it's it, the conventional way of it working um, doesn't really doesn't really make any sense. Um, and 
I've often thought Jung would be interested to see what's happened in terms of the growth of fundamentalism, um, because the growth of fundamentalism seems to be something which demonstrates that um, even though the the symbol doesn't work, you, it, it, it can still be an, an, an immense um, political, very dangerous uh, a political forces as well. And there is this great quote by G.K. Chesterton, isn't there? Is that when men stop believing in God, which human beings stop uh, believing in God, um, if they don't stop believing they'll believe anything. Well, another thing that, that we, we come back to in, in, in various conversations with, with scholars and analysts in, this, uh, in the beginning of this um, podcast series now, has been the famous quote from Jung in the BBC interview when he says, I don't need to believe, I know. I'm not sure if you have anything, sort of, to, to, any reflections on that statement from, from sort of all these years that you spent studying Jung and how you sort of contextualize or understand the statement. I, I felt you touched upon it before, but is there anything more that, that, that reflections that you have on that statement or... Well, no, it's a it, it, it's a good question, and um, I, I I think it's a great moment. Um, it's a, it's a fantastic interview, and it's it it's a, a great moment in the interview, and just reminds us of of what a good performer Jung was. I mean, you know, give him give him credit. He's 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 excellent at doing this this sort of publicity publicity stuff. Um, uh, and and it's such an intriguing uh, moment. Um, when he is put by John Freeman, the um, the Gretchen Frage, as the Germans call it, don't they? You know, the Gretchen question: you know, Do you believe in God or not? You know, this is this is put to Jung, um, and it's just wonderful to see how he really sort of ramps it up for 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 full effect um, by saying, "Oh, we'll believe," um, and pauses so dramatically, and then says, "I know," but of course. He doesn't tell us what he knows. <laughs> um, and it's even a wonderfully ambiguous statement because in some ways it's it's a kind of Gnostic remark, isn't it? You know, I don't believe, but I have I have this this knowledge. Um and I I've often wondered whether he's saying there, well, I know that there is a God, um, or I know that there isn't a God. Um it, it seems to me that it's it's classic Jung. Um on the one hand, it's very, very serious. Uh, it's serious is one of the most fundamental questions that one can one can ask and, and yet at the same time it's it, it's playful um there's something i remember um that Jung once described to me that Jung has been has been shulkhaft um gosh how would one translate that sort of roguish and and so on and it seems to me there is something shulkhaft about this just the same way that he is um he's he's playful and humorous and at the same time very very serious when he talks about being an, an illegitimate child of of birth um and to me it's it, it's a great moment because it shows Jung as being um, very human um a, a great communicator um it's a wonderful way of dodging uh the uh, the question um and it's it's got us all still puzzling and wondering um decades after that program was originally shown Did this episode evoke any thoughts or feelings or reflections? Please share your feedback on cross.center slash feedback. You can there also record an audio message and we might include 